This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. Thank you for having me, Mitchell. The, uh, the Secret Lives of Church Ladies is a, is a gem. It's an absolute gem. And I have to tell you that I was first introduced to it because it's from University of West Virginia Press, mm-hmm. not a press that normally I see lots from. Mm-hmm. But you have, you probably know him, you have a fan who's a sales rep named Bob Barnett. Have you met Bob? Yes. Well, virtually, yes. Yeah. Bob mm-hmm. is a, this is the power of, you know, they talk about book selling being word of mouth and yeah. book by book by book. Mm-hmm. And it actually is. Because yes. Bob, Bob sent this to me during the pandemic. He sent mm-hmm. me the, uh, the galley. And he said, Mitchell, you have to read this. And, you know, when Bob speaks, I listen. Mm -hmm. Bob was actually the PW Rep of the Year. And um, he really, I mean, he knew my taste. This is, this this was a revelation. So talk a little bit, talk a little bit about the pandemic, publishing this book, and at the same time, the success that it's had. Because as everyone out there knows, Disha's book, was shortlisted. Uh, it was an, it was a finalist for the National Book Award, which I can tell you from years of experience does not happen often to a collection, a first collection of stories. So just talk a little bit about the journey this year, just through the pandemic. What was your life like? So like everybody else, um, you know, when things started to shut down, I mean, this is just unprecedented. Um, but I tend to be a very risk averse person. So from day one, I was, you know, following all the rules. I'm like, fine, I'll stay in my house. You know, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to stay safe, keep my family safe. And then people started saying, but your book, your book, because the book uh, was coming out September 1st. And initially, you know, people were hopeful that by the fall, you know, we'd all be out and about. But I, kind of figured from the beginning, I was like, I'm not going to bank on being us being out by fall. And, um, and so I just took it in stride because it's still publishing a book. Like, I am thankful for everything that's happened, but just the idea of finishing a book and then having that book, you know, finding a publishing home and coming out like that for me was fantastic because it's taken me so long you know I started working on a novel um in the early 2000s and you know and then this book is a detour from the novel so just getting it out I was excited so I was like okay we'll we'll adapt I don't know what it's going to look like to have a book come out during a pandemic but we'll figure it out um and then you know people complain about zoom but I I like it it's increased the reach that I, you know, I would not have connected with as many bookstores and readers and booksellers and bookstagrammers um, were it not for the pandemic. So, um, so I've just sort of accepted the pandemic, <laughs> you know, on, on its terms. I'm not in a rush to get back out. I mean, I do want to visit 
places like your bookstore and travel again. Um, but I feel like, you know, there's so this is critical, right? So just context, um, you know, my kids are healthy, I'm healthy, I'm happy. Um, but then for the book to be nominated for a National Book Award, I, I still have not gotten over that. I'm still over the moon about that um, for the reasons you said. I mean, it's on a university press. It's a collection of short stories. It's a first book. It's a little book. So um, all of those things, I just am thankful that it was received the way it has been, that it had that it has been, it was nominated. Um, but also just for the everyday people who have said, you know, this book started a conversation between me and my mom, you know, or something like that, or um, hearing men who have read the book and them feeling like they learned something about women's lives. Um, all of that's happening against the backdrop of this horrific time in our, our country's history. And so I'm savoring it even more, I think, in the midst of that. What have you learned about our literary community through all this? What have you learned about the bookstores, about readers, about, about people like Bob who shepherd these yeah. things through? The, you know, people talk about uh, the literary world as, you know, it's not a meritocracy. Um, it's very white, you know, publishing, all of those things are true. I think in my experience, I've learned the and, and <laughs> there are some fantastic people who genuinely love books and good stories and the networking, the connection feels so genuine and loving as opposed to the kind of like, well, who do you know, sort of thing, you know, in that sense, it's felt, you know, very much like, a, like a, 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 I've gotten a warm welcome, a very warm reception. Um, I knew sort of the world of libraries and librarians more. Um, I, from a little, just as a little kid, I spent a lot of time on the floor of the public library in Jacksonville, the main branch downtown. Um, but, and I have friends in my adulthood who are librarians. They're just the best people. And then in this time, I'm learning about booksellers. And I'm like, they're like librarians, <laughs> you know, in the same kind of spirit of just community and love for good stories and just the unabashed support. Um, you know, I just, I was not expecting it because I didn't know that that world existed um, until I had a book in the world. So um, I am so thankful for the community of booksellers who talk to each other, um, who all support each other. Um, and that, and when the pandemic hit, that was the one thing we could do. We could buy books, right? And, you know, and so before my book came out, I was just thinking about other people who had books coming out sooner. And I just bought up a bunch more books. I mean, I still haven't read them all. Well, and also what you've done, which I really appreciate through your Twitter account and everything, the way you've supported independent book stores, yeah. been really, really impressive. And on yeah. behalf of all of us, I want to thank you for that. Oh, you are welcome. It's been such a pleasure. And, um, you know, people ask me all the time, like, where should I buy my books? Or, you know, where does it benefit you the most? And I was like, that's not the most important question. I said, we need independent booksellers. So wherever your indie is, or if you don't know where it is, I'll tell you where to go, um, you know, to support. And, um, you know, it's like, I feel like this pandemic has been a test of that. 
Um, and it's raised a lot of awareness because people, you know, what the quick thing to do or the click is quickest place to click. Um, but we don't want to do that. We want to be really intentional. And I think that um, seeing other people do that, um, seeing booksellers just invite us in to come and read or, you know, oh, we'll carry signed copies of your book. I'm one of my booksellers here, White Whale. Um, we're neighbors. We didn't even know that. So they came to my house and brought like 140 books and then I went back to their house. And so that sense of community, you know, offline, online, on social media, you know, at its best, you know, that's what we're doing. So, um, you know, I'm happy to do what I can. You all. Well, the, the beautiful thing is, you now have friends in every state in the country, yes. almost every city. Yes. Stop in, and you know, I'm very proud of. This is why I do what I do, and I'm very yes. proud to be able to be part of this launch of this spectacular, spectacular book. And I'm going to embarrass you a little bit because okay. I want to, I want to read from this review that I read, which kind of dovetails pretty much with what I thought when I read it. And I know that you're familiar with it. It's Marion Winnick's review. Yes. She reviewed. And it starts just, it starts, in a, it starts so joyously that I just want to, I want to read it. Do you mind if I do that? <laughs> no, not at all. I'm so grateful to her. In, the, in this year of constriction and pain, juicy goodness bursts from every page of Disha Filia's debut story collection. The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. Philia is the author of several previous nonfiction books, and her essays about race, gender, parenting, and culture have been published widely. Each of the nine stories revolves around Black female characters, the Black church, and S-E-X. In particular, the tension between following rules in public and breaking them in private. As Eula, the title character of the first story, says to her same-time-next-year lover, Carlotta, do you think God wants you or anybody to go untouched for decades and decades for their whole lives? All those women at the church who think they have to choose between pleasing God and something so basic, so human, as being held and known in the most intimate way. As Eula points out, women are making themselves miserable following rules handed down from one group of men to another. In the stories that follow, infidelity, homosexuality, casual sex, age-inappropriate liaisons, and lesbian lust for the preacher's wife are among the flavors of flaunting that are explored. Now, if that doesn't get every single person into the bookshop yeah. to read this these stories, I don't know what will. So I want to ask you, uh, Disha, since this is your first collection, mm -hmm. where did that burst come from? Where was it? How did it kind of simmer to the burst? It, it, it is more of a simmering, I think, than a burst. Um, you know, I started in the early 2000s um, was when I started writing. And I, um, I wasn't writing in my mind, I didn't think of it as I'm writing about church ladies, it was I'm writing about dissatisfied women, because I was a dissatisfied woman, but I just wasn't comfortable writing nonfiction. 
And so I sort of gave my dissatisfaction to these other women who were typically older than me. They were more matronly and like, yeah, they are the women that I remember from church <laughs> growing up, you know? Um, and I think that those women stayed in my memory and my imagination um, because I was so curious about them. Um, I, from the time I was very young, I was sent to church by my mother and my grandmother who didn't go to church. So that was very confusing. And so, um, especially once adolescence, uh, you know, hit, you, you know, I'm looking around and trying to see like, well, who, who am I going to be? They're the women in the church and the women out of the church. And do they like sex? Do they masturbate? You know, I'm trying to figure this whole so thing out. Your, your, your mother was not a churchgoer. Not until I went to college. And so I really haven't unpacked that until this year, because I just always took it in stride that they sent me to church and my grandmother, one time I did ask my grandmother, I said, well, you know, how come you don't go to church? And she said, oh, I'll go when I get right. And even as a child, I knew that something's wrong there. Like, you're, I thought church was a place where you can go to get right. And so there was something keeping them from church. And now I know it was sort of the hypocrisy and the double standards and the judgment and the shame and fear and guilt and all of that kind of stuff um, that was, you know, part and parcel of what I was learning at church. And so I think because I never really made sense of it and was so curious about those women's lives when I went into the mode of writing fiction, those were the women that, you know, populated my imagination. And so I was working on novels, um, stalled after a very long time, um, took a detour and wrote a co-parenting book with my ex, got an agent that way. And then um, I started writing these short stories and my agent would hear me read them at events. And she said, you know, I like these church lady stories. So it was her, she first sort of saw them that way. And she said, maybe while you're kind of on hiatus from this novel, um, you know, maybe you can put together a collection. And even though putting together a collection is a lot of work too, it felt less daunting than finishing that novel that I had been, you know, working on for so long. And, um, and so I got really intentional about having stories that were about women who were either church ladies or what I call church lady adjacent, meaning even if they're not in the church, there's someone in their lives who is in the church who is influential. And that's when I started to focus in. Um, and I looked at um, stories that I had been writing over the years, bits and pieces, unfinished things, and you know, thinking how could this be a church lady story or church lady adjacent story? Um, so some of these stories had roots a long time ago, and then others were written, you know, right before my deadline. <laughs> so it just depended on, uh, you know, on the story. But um, but that was the the heart of it, my childhood. Do you think it would be accurate to say that you're your mother's daughter in the sense that she saw the hypocrisy of it, and you did too? <laughs> yeah, you know, I think her, I mean, my, I feel like mine is more confrontational, you know, challenging the hypocrisy, whereas I feel like my mother was wounded by the hypocrisy of it. And so then in her later life, she returned, she did go to church and, you know, kind of swallowed it, you know, hook, line and sinker, whereas I was always full of questions. Right, so, right, right. Yeah. No, it's... I mean, you can see it. it, you know, what you've done is you've humanized, you know, all of those people that we see who you expect to be one way 
into our yeah. absolutely another way. It's, yeah. it's almost like the secret lives of all of us, not just mm -hmm. of church ladies. I mm -hmm. think it can, be, it can be brought out to the whole world, you know, the whole community yeah. in sense. Yeah, and that's something to remember that you know you have secrets. So of course other people have secrets, right. you know? <laughs> we all have right. secrets. Um, no. And it's, you know, what we, you know, what is it that we only tell those who are closest to us or like us? And what is it that maybe we don't tell anybody but ourselves? And that's so, what I wanted to touch. Even though you're living in Pittsburgh, the South has so much, the South is infused in all of mm -hmm. this. So mm -hmm. tell me about that. Why the South? Yeah, that I was born and raised in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, I still consider myself a Southerner. I've lived in Pittsburgh longer than I lived in Florida, and then Florida is still home. I don't know that I would move back. But again, like the, just the fondness of, you know, my memories from my childhood and I, that's where I was shaped and, you know, for better or for worse, you know, all the good parts and all the bad parts. And, um, and when I think about, you know, the women who, you know, I imagined for my stories, I put them in the places that I loved. I put them in the places where I was loved. And so, you know, that, uh, you know, they'll always have that sort of special resonance for me. Um, and culturally, I, you know, I still, you know, I cook like a Southerner. Um, if I get on the phone with my sisters, all of my accent comes back, you know, all of that. So it's never far away. Um, and so, you know, fiction is a place where we delight in and can travel to wherever we want. And I choose the South. And, and what I think happens, too, is that you inhabit the sensibilities of all of these characters who are so different. And clearly, you didn't want to do something that um, didn't interest you. So each character is distinct. Each character is so very different. And I think that's what makes the book so beautifully lively, is that the voices are so different. And you played with narrative structure so mm -hmm. interestingly as well. There's a few of the stories that stood out to me. The story Peach Cobbler, you talk about how you love to cook. Mm -hmm. That was a really interesting, interesting story. Talk about how that came about. It came about from the first line, which is, um, my mother made a peach cobbler so good, it made God himself cheat on his wife. <laughs> and I, I don't know where the line came from. I remember I was trying to write a story for some publication was having a food issue. And, and I don't know where the line came from, but that was the reason for the line. So I started to think about food and, and then that came about. And, um, and so then it became a series of questions after that, which is, okay, now that I have this sentence, and I knew when I, when, it, when I wrote it that the girl was a child who thought that the pastor was God. I knew that part. So I'm like, okay, um, you know, who is this child? What is her relationship to her mother? And, and you know, if, if, you know, God is cheating, that means he's cheating with her mother. And what are the circumstances around that? And so kind of building out those relationships, you know, I sort of set myself up and then I had to answer all these questions. And, um, and I worked on that story for a couple of years. It's one of the oldest stories in the collection. And something I always tell uh, aspiring writers or emerging writers, um, it was rejected a lot. Um, this story has not been published anywhere but in my collection. And so, you know, that just shows you that all of this is subjective and it's the 
Um, people tell me it's their favorite story more so than any of the other stories in the collection. And so I, I worked on it for a long time. Um, it had a different ending initially. I took um, the main character and the boy Trevor, I took them into adulthood in one version oh, of wow. this story. And oh. all of my readers hated that. I oh. loved it. <laughs> I absolutely loved it. But nobody else did. Um, and so like maybe if one person didn't like it, I'd say, oh, well, but nobody liked that ending. And so I scrapped it and I thought, okay, well, if I end it with them as teenagers, how do I end it? And I knew that I just felt like her life wouldn't be neat. There would not be a neat ending to that story. Um, and so I tried to end it as true as I possibly can that, you know, when we have relationships with parents who aren't who we need them to be, it feels like a trap. You know, you feel stuck. And so I made it, I ended it where she was stuck. That felt right to me. And I love the um, way you chose the first person. And you also were able, I think you, you I mean, adolescence, you really got mm -hmm. it. You really, really got it. It was yeah. it's sort of my own, you know, it was like me reading Catcher in the Rye for the first time. I mean, you really yeah. got it in so many different ways. We're so then, vulnerable in adolescence. <laughs> We all are, aren't we? Yeah. But then, but then you changed tone and 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 style and how to make love to a physicist, right? Mm -hmm. Where you have literally rules that are like yes, which was which was great as well. We don't want we don't want to give too much away because yeah. <laughs> I really want people to be surprised when they read this, as I was, because you know to be honest, I didn't know who you were. I didn't mm -hmm. really read anything from University of West Virginia in the past. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what to expect. In The Secret Life of Church Ladies, I had my own preconceived ideas mm -hmm. to what it would be. And then I was just blown away by how <laughs> wrong I was on every single account when I read it. So I, that sense of discovery was part of the pleasure of reading it. Great. I want others to feel the very same way. But, you know, but I, by bringing up How to Make Love to a, a Physicist, it shows that what Disha's doing is actually just changing tone, changing, mm -hmm. changing narrative, changing style. It, it shows mm -hmm. your, it kind of shows your chops more or less, you know, it shows yeah. what you really can do, which I really, really love. And Thank then, you. and then I really know you're a Jacksonville girl because I read <laughs> Snowfall, right? Yeah. <laughs> Even though I hate the cold. I hate that. I just, everything about it. I, it's terrible. My kids, but my kids were born, like my youngest was born in Chicago and my oldest was born here and they love the snow and they love the cold. And, and when they were really little, I, I tell people, this, I bundled them up and I take them outside for a few minutes and they wouldn't want to come in. So I go back in the house and I watch them. <laughs> <laughs> a terrible mother but I because I couldn't it was they would fall and lie in the snow and roll around and I'd just be freezing and so uncomfortable um but that's where that place of like this is not this I am I am displaced here in the cold <laughs> what did you think of Jacksonville growing up what was Jacksonville like you know you can't appreciate a place until you leave it you know and um I couldn't wait to leave Jacksonville. I couldn't wait to get out of the South. Um, you know, when I, growing up, I wanted to be somewhere else. I wanted to see other places, but you know, I, my childhood, I grew up in an area that, you know, was considered rough 
but um, you know, we had so much freedom, you know, and so I just have very fond memories of riding my bikes and my bike with my friends and we would be gone all day and nobody knew where we were. And, um, you know, I don't know how we didn't have heat stroke because <laughs> we would be out in 90, 100 degree weather and we, you know, built uh, clubhouses and climb trees and all of that kind of stuff. And so um, I was part of a very loving family and loving community. Um, I got a great education. Um, my, I went to a college prep magnet school there that uh, is consistently ranked, um, if not the best school in the nation, one of the best. Um, so I, I had, you know, I, I, it was still the South, but there was still, um, you know, racism and there was still things that, um, you know, you would expect. But I, not that I was shielded from it, but really my worst experiences of racism were outside of the South. They were in Greenwich, Connecticut, where I taught for a while. So my memories are pretty fond. Um, and uh, I'm also not a fan of like being out in the sun a lot either. So <laughs> a lot of my memories are like getting from one air conditioned place to another. But, you know, I took advantage, I took, um, not advantage, took for granted being able to go to the beach in 30 minutes. But I know exactly what you mean. I grew up in South Florida. I grew up in Miami Beach, mm -hmm. all places. But for me, I had a different experience. I mean, for me, I kind of wanted to experience something so different than mm -hmm. palm trees and whatever. Yeah. I kind of closed my eyes and I ended up at the University of Colorado. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, you went west, boy, I went north. <laughs> boy, was it cold. But, yeah. you know, Jacksonville has a very long history you know, long, I mean, you know, Jacksonville is the South and it was in the early days, had a long civil rights history as well. There's some mm -hmm. incredible people that came out of it. There's a, a wonderful friend of mine who's a writer named, I don't know if you know her, Tanana Reeve Du. Do you mm -hmm. know her? Mm -hmm. Not Reeve's personally, mother. but know her work. Tanana Reeve is, is a marvelous writer. And her mom, her mom was an incredible civil rights activist who grew mm -hmm. up in Jacksonville. Mm -hmm. And she was, you know, she led the... Um, you know, some of the bus boycotts there and that's, mm -hmm. and we don't realize when you're living in Miami and we're living in the age mm -hmm. that we're living in, you just don't realize how deep South the South was. I mean, Jacksonville right. was, you don't think of Florida as being in the deep South in any real People way. say that to me, especially cause I don't have my accent anymore. They say that. Um, but so, you know, I was bust. So, you know, I sort of reaped the benefits if you want to call it that. I mean, it's a, it was a mixed bag being bust um, you know, 30 minutes each way to a white community to go to an elementary school. And the, the politics of where I grew up with, I didn't learn until I left it, you know, because right. mine wasn't a family that talked about those sorts of things. So the idea that I was bust, it was just, I, that's where I went to school. No one talked to me about you're being bust to a white neighborhood. And I never asked, well, how come there's no school in my neighborhood that I could go right. to? Um, or, you know, so I didn't learn about the full context of that until I went to college and was taking classes on African-American history. I knew my mother and grandmother grew up and drank from, um, you know, colored fountains. So it's not like they, they grew up in Jacksonville as well. Were they from mm -hmm. Originally, my grandparents are all from different parts of Georgia, um, but uh, moved to Florida. And then my mom was born and raised in Jacksonville. And, you know, so I knew about segregation and I knew the things that they experienced, but it was, I was very much in a bubble. Um, and so it wasn't until I went to college and 
actually read about the South that I learned the larger context because right. all I knew was my little corner of it. Um, and, um, and again, you know, had a pretty idyllic um, experience, even though, you know, I was in a neighborhood that people considered rough, you know. In well, it sounds of, like your neighborhood was, your neighborhood stayed together, which was really. Yeah, rough. it was very loving and close knit. You know, I, I've written about um, the, you see a lot of older women in my book. And that's because I was, ra my, my grandmother and my mother raised me. And so I was always around older women. And then it was the older women in the neighborhood who babysat me um, before um, I was old enough to stay home alone. You know, we were latchkey kids. So, <laughs> but pre-latchkey, you know, you stayed with Miss Kelly or Miss Maybell. Um, and then when we were old enough to be on our own, they looked out and watched us. <laughs> and, you know, you had to go hide to do things you shouldn't be doing because they were always watching. Um, and so I have this sort of fondness of, of, you know, just knowing I was always being cared for and watched over. Um, and that's what I knew of the South. Um, I had to, you know, go read in a book about <laughs> you know, the, the larger context. So yeah. let's talk about your journey as a writer. Yeah. When did you realize that writing was the path you wanted to go down? So let's see, my, it would have been like early 2000s. Um, I was a stay-at-home mom. Uh, my old- You had already finished dog. school, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> yeah. You went to Yale, right? Yes, I did. Sorry, my dog is really snoring loudly. I don't know if you can hear her the way I can. Um, so yeah, I had gone. I, I have a, a bachelor's in economics. Uh, I was a first-generation college student. I was being practical. I wanted to get a job in business. I, I didn't even know what that meant. Um, but I hated my first job out of college, which was actually in management consulting. And then I went back and I got a master's degree in teaching and I taught elementary school in Greenwich for a few years. Um, and then my then husband and I moved to Pittsburgh, which is where he was from, and, um, and decided we wanted to start a family. And I didn't, I never went back to teaching. And so I decided to be a stay-at-home mom. And I was I absolutely adored my child, but I was bored. I was completely bored. And I'd always enjoyed writing. And so writing was the thing I would do for myself, just like a little corner of each day. And I had a kid who never napped. So that was really hard. And then it turned into like one night a week was my writing time. And so writing- But you, but you wrote early on about her, about your daughter, right? So we, I started writing about my kids when my second daughter was born. So that would have been like the end of 2003. I was writing a column called Literary Mama. And so I, I switched to personal essay. Again, these detours, I've always just wanted to write fiction, but it never <laughs> worked out, seemed to work out that way. Um, but I initially it was writing the, I was fictionalizing the dissatisfaction I was feeling and giving it to these, you know, women from my childhood. And, um, and just, that's where it started for me. Um, and I didn't want to do anything else. I didn't want to go back to teaching. Um, I couldn't, there was no other profession that I wanted to do. Um, it felt indulgent to tell stories, but so what, right? And so, um, you know, I thought, well, this is what I'm going to do. It gave me a lot of, of pleasure when I didn't, wasn't always happy. And then I got divorced and it was like, okay, so now I got to make a living at this. <laughs> so that's, so then I started doing a whole different kind of writing. But I'm intrigued by the fact that you and your ex-husband 
wrote a book on divorce together, which is yeah. really interesting. Yeah, it was his idea. He's a banker. And um, we got along well and we're co-parenting with our kids and people would say, oh, you guys are like the poster children for divorce. You should write a book. <laughs> and so he said, you know, we'd heard that a lot. And he said to me one day, he was like, really, you should write a book about this. And I said, well, I think it would be more impactful if we did it together, you know? And, um, and so then it was like, okay, now I got to figure out how do you write a nonfiction book? <laughs> like, I'm still trying to do this fiction thing. And so I figured that out and like, you know, it's the business, you know, you've got to have a platform and the marketing and all of that stuff. So we built a co-parenting brand and had a blog. This was during the heyday of blogging. And we had, um, you know, the first wave of podcasts, you know, radio shows, we call them. Um, we had that for four years, like every Sunday night. I don't know how we did that. Um, but we built a big platform such that it was attractive to a publisher when we were ready to, to sell the book. Um, but all along, I really wanted to be writing fiction. I really missed my stories. Um, and that's always been the kind of writing that I've preferred. I, you know, I, I do write essays um, and I don't dislike it. Um, but my heart is really with my imagination and with uh, still dissatisfied women. They may not be church ladies all the time, um, but that kernel of dissatisfaction, there's always a good story there. And I like, I, I think that you're unfettered by, by not, you never went to an MFA program either, mm -hmm. right? So that, no. that kind of opens up all kinds of possibilities, <laughs> right? Yeah. You were never part of the uh, you were never part of the academic world of of creative writing in this sense. No, I mean I've as far as academia, I've been an adjunct, but it's always been um, like there's a university here, Chatham, that has a Master of Professional Writing program, and I first taught a course on um, newspaper and magazine writing, and then I switched to business and organizational writing. And I did that for like eight years. And that was as close as I got to academia. And that was way too close. That was enough for me. Um, and, you know, but I have dear, dear friends who are academics. Um, and I have friends who have MFAs um, who have shared, you know, what they feel like were the pros and cons of, of going that route. And I've just, I've never felt like it was something I needed to do. Like it, it didn't hold me back. Um, but, um, one thing I know is that, you know, it, it forced me to have to read a lot more on my own because, you know, I know that one of the things you get in those programs is you become very widely, you know, you are well-read, I should say. So um, that, that actually leads me to my next question. So do you have any North Stars books that are your kind of, you know, books that you, you know, keep in mind that you refer yeah. to books that have meant so much to you and what yeah. are they? Gosh, everything Toni Morrison has ever written, <laughs> but specifically Sula. Yeah. Um, you know, talk about dissatisfied women, talk about women indulging and writing their own rules. Um, I mean, that's the blueprint. That is the absolute blueprint for it. Um, what the relationship between women um, as friends, relationships between mothers and daughters, all of these things that um, are just so second nature to me um in my own writing you know she does it all and uh, i could just read sula forever so definitely sula 
Um, and then more recently, um, my friend Kiese Lehman, you know, his memoir isn't, obviously it's not fiction, but the truth telling and writing honestly about our mothers, I, I, you know, he did so many things with that book, but that's one thing that um, I saw his courage and I was like, you know, we can be um, honest about our mothers and, and not necessarily like my own mother, but, you know, writing about mothers and daughters and, and that the truth of those relationships, it's the, you know, you could write about that forever and never run out of ideas. And um, I heard him speak once um, at an event here in Pittsburgh and I asked him, I said, what do we owe our mothers? And he said, um, to see them as something other than our mothers. And I've kind of taken that with me into my writing about mothers and daughters, that it's this journey of seeing your mother as someone other than your mother and that kind of grace. Um, and then I, um, two other folks who, who, who um, I love their work and they're friends of mine, Nafisa Thompson Spires, the heads of the color people, her collection of short stories is just mind-blowing and quirky and beautiful. And I got the sense before I even knew her, this woman wrote whatever she wanted to write. Like she wasn't doing like, well, will this be acceptable or will it sell or will people get it? You could tell that she loved every single one of those stories and, and she was unfettered. Um, similarly, my friend Basi Ikpi, who wrote a memoir, um, I'm Telling the Truth, But I'm Lying, and she was writing about her life with um, anxiety and bipolar too. And, um, and she, I, you know, I've heard Basi say she wrote just as a given that people would want to read this story. Mm. And, you know, just to have that attitude of why wouldn't people want to read this story? Um, and so they gave me a lot of courage um, just watching them. So yeah. well, those are great, great recommendations. Uh, before I ask you to read a little something, what mm -hmm. I'm what I'm wondering is, as all of us are wondering, what's next? Is that so, novel coming out of the drawer, or do you have a new one on the works on the way? Or you know, so the of the three novels that I've attempted since the early 2000s, there's one in particular that I really was working on in earnest starting in 2007. And it features, um, uh, the main character is the wife of a megachurch pastor. So she is a church lady. Um, and I got stuck on that story um, and I didn't know why and I didn't know how to get unstuck. And literally the day I hit send on my short story collection manuscript, I had this light bulb moment of, this is what I need to do with that story. Um, in part, it had to do with raising the stakes mm -hmm. in the story. And I, and I, you know, just didn't know how to do that. Um, and, and that's why I got stuck. But I just wrote nine stories with a lot of, at stake. And I thought, now I know how to go back and, and do that. So I needed this collection to get me unstuck. But then I was thinking to myself, you know, that's a huge commitment, one story, and I get bored. And so I thought, what if I wrote another collection of stories? My agent is going to die when she hears this. <laughs> um, so, so, so I've been thinking about that. Um, there's this pull towards wanting to 
do more stories. Again, it's fun. It's indulgent. I, you know, I could do a lot of things as opposed to a novel, which feels a bit more constrained, but I'm going to try the novel. I have, I'm working on an outline for that. Um, and I think it's probably okay for me to share that um, I've had interest in having the book adapted for television. Mm -hmm. So hopefully, um, you know, that'll be happening and I'll be involved in that. Um, Do you have something happening right. soon? Do you have something? Well, you know, none of this happens soon, <laughs> but um, I hope that we can announce something soon. I'll put it that way. Um, but yeah. Oh, yeah. that's great. That's really, really great. Well, you know, uh, Marion called your, your, your stories juicy. To yeah. me, they're also joyous, even though they're dealing yeah. with even though they're dealing with tough, tough stuff, but it's, mm -hmm. there's something joyous about it. But now that I talk to you, that's the kind of person you are as well. Oh, very, thank very you. This kind of person. So would you read a little something? Sure. Um, my favorite thing to read is the opening of Peach Cobbler, the first okay. two pages of Peach Cobbler. Right. My mother's Peach Cobbler was so good, it made God himself cheat on his wife. When I was five, I hovered around my mother in the kitchen, watching, close enough to have memorized all the ingredients and steps by the time I was six, but not too close to make her yell at me for being in the way, and not close enough to see the exact measurements she used. She never wrote the recipe down. Without having to be told, I learned not to ask questions about that cobbler or about God. I learned not to say anything at all about him hunching over our kitchen table every Monday, eating plate after plate of peach cobbler and then disappearing into the bedroom I shared with my mother. I became a silent student of my mother and her cobbler making ways. Even when I was older and no longer believed that God and Reverend Troy Neely were one and the same, I still longed to perfect the sweetness and textures of my mother's cobbler. My mother, who fed me TV dinners, baked a peach cobbler with fresh peaches every Monday, her day off from the diner where she waited tables. She always said Sunday was her Saturday and Monday was her Sunday. What I knew was that none of her days were for me. And for many of those Mondays off and on during my childhood, God, to my child's mind, would stop by and eat an entire eight by eight pan of cobbler. My mother never ate any of the cobbler herself. She said she didn't like peaches. She would shoo me out of the kitchen before God could offer me any, but I doubted he would have offered even if I'd sat right down next to him. God was an old fat man, like a black Santa. And I imagined, his, I imagined my mother's peach cobbler contributing to his girth. Some Mondays, God would arrive after dinner and leave as I lay curled up on the couch watching Little House on the Prairie in the living room. Other times, my mother and God would already be in the bedroom when I got home from school. I could hear moaning and pounding like a board hitting a wall as soon as I entered the house. I would shut the front door quietly behind me and tiptoe down the hall to listen outside the bedroom door. Oh God, oh God, oh God my mother would cry. I could hear God too, his voice low and growly saying, yes, yes, yes. 
Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you so much, Disha. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on The Literary Life. I hope that we'll have many, many, many more afternoons together. And I, I hope that. to see you in the physical world down here at Books and Books in Miami. Uh, good luck with everything that you do. And I know that you'll be doing a virtual event for us and you'll be doing virtual events all over the country. And your website is lovely, by the way. So oh, I, thank I, you. everybody should go to, to your website too to find out where uh, Disha will be next. Thank you. And have a wonderful holiday and be very, very safe. Thanks. You too, Mitchell.